0: While you're turning, for those that are visiting, we started a little over a month ago a study in the book of Romans, seeking to have realistic expectations. One of the insufficiencies of such a study, for it is such a deep and vast book, but we want to survey the whole of the book and not take 20 years to do it, so we're trying to move right along. Uh, We've been four messages so far. We looked at a general introductory message. We looked at the from Paul section of the greeting. That was pretty long because he carries a lot of thoughts in that section. Doctrines he'll touch on along the way. We looked at the to the Romans part of that greeting and the gospel comforts really that those words contain. And then last time we looked at just the three bullet points of Paul's own impressions of this gospel that he is presenting and planning to set before these people, which he said, I am a debtor, I'm ready, and I'm not ashamed. And so he comes today, and we're just going to read briefly today. We've been reading the opening 18 verses really uh, almost each week. But I won't just even really for the sake of emphasis only to read verses 16 and 17 together today. So from Romans 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's ask the Lord, upon even this brief reading of His Word, to write the Word upon our hearts and to give us help. Let's bow our heads together. A gracious Heavenly Father, as we pause and again seek the help of heaven as we come to consider Your Word today, we ask for that very thing, the help of heaven. The help of Your Spirit to open the Word. The help of Your Spirit to understand the Word. The help of Your Spirit to apply the Word and live it. And so, Lord, grant us that. And as we have read and seen already in these opening words, for Jesus' sake, for His glory, we pray that You would do such things. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In these words that we have read together today, there is no room for doubt in the assertion that Paul is clearly giving the theme of this most important epistle. In a word, that theme is the Gospel. In a series of phrases, we might say that that theme is the revelation of how God places the ungodly in a righteous standing with Himself by faith alone. I want to look at these words, these two verses that show us the theme, the thesis really of Paul's epistle. But I want to pause for a few minutes before we get to the very meat of these words and just highlight a couple of things. There's one thing I want to highlight that we're not going to I trust we'll mention it as we go along, but it didn't make its way into the main headings, if you will. But it's that this Gospel is revealed. This Gospel that Paul's going to unfold, that he's going to give so much detail about in this epistle, is not the the sanctified thinking of men. It's something that God Himself has revealed unto us. It's not religion, if you will. There's a lot of truth in the trite phrase that religion is man seeking God. Christianity is God seeking men. This is a religion. This is a Gospel that is revealed. But I want to pause still again and further. And I want to look at some key passages in the book itself. You have that privilege in something that's written You don't have that in something that's preached. Some of the difference, I've had to deal with this with students and papers already this year, that preaching is different than writing. Uh, In writing, people have the opportunity and the convenience of, if they miss something, going back, oh, I must have missed something important in the last paragraph, because this paragraph isn't making sense to me, they go back. There's no need, as it were, to repeat yourself over and over, like to... Meet a word count or something like that. But in preaching, well, you might drift a little here and there. You might be thinking about why does this leg hurt so much today and so forth. And if you miss something, it's gone unless the preacher comes back and repeats himself a little bit, which you can do more in preaching. But we have the opportunity in the written epistle that's before us to read it once, to read it twice, to read it multiple times, that we might gain more and more understanding of what's there. And I think then it'll help us as we come again to this statement of the thesis, which is clear enough on its own, but to look ahead to see a little bit about where Paul's going, and it'll set this thesis statement in a clearer light. So, if you would turn with me over just a few pages, if you turn with me to, well, let's see, let us do first from chapter 5. Chapter 5, I want to just read or have you focus on two verses here. The thesis is what we're looking at now in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But if you wanted to add along the way in an analysis of the book, the key passage, the real central meat of what Paul is dealing with, you would put here from Romans 5, verse 12 down to verse 21. If you read with me verse 12, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Notice that emphasis. Whereas by one man sin entered. Now if you turn over to verse 19 of chapter 5, just a few verses down, as Paul's worked through that truth, he comes in some ways to summarize it. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Folks, that is a giant text. It's one I would put to you to commit to memory early in life and keep in memory and review all throughout life. When Jan and I were called upon to visit a neighbor, several years ago that was really in the last stages of cancer and on her deathbed in her home. She was a very devout Roman Catholic tried to convert Jan and Jan, or me through Jan, to Catholicism. She was genuinely worried that we had left the fold. I did not have the heart to tell her that Ian Paisley had slept 40 feet from their house. Uh, Just, uh, I know that's... Years ago now goes by younger people, but um, a very Protestant figure. Um, but Jan had shared the gospel with her. She had asked us to watch some pro-Roman videos, uh, so forth. A friendly relationship, but, well, you understand our burden. Well, we're going to see her for the last time. I thought, what can I say? I don't know how alert she'll be, how long she'll be awake for us to speak to her. I was impressed. Share one verse. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. If you needed a verse to help someone understand, to cast off all the the mixture of works, righteousness, that is the Roman Gospel, in quotes, there it is. This good news is not about any good works we perform at all. It's entirely about the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to His believing people. And I say here is the key passage of this book. And if you consider what Paul is dealing with, and I want to turn up a couple verses and in some ways give you the outline of the book, very simply, just the two major headings. But this Gospel that Paul is going to share, this Gospel of God, this Gospel of Christ, this Gospel of salvation, is really the story of two men the first and the last Adam. And if you understand that, these were two people, two individuals that served as representatives of all of those other individuals that were in them. There was a covenanted union between these men and a group of people. They were public persons, the way some of the older writers used to speak of them. Adam and Christ. And that's the heart of the message of this book. That's the heart of the message of the Gospel. And if you want to look with me, there are two verses that I want to pull out to you. Back in our chapter chapter 1, in verse 18, if you read with me here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's the statement of the opening section of the book of Romans. The revelation of wrath. And if you go over to chapter 3, Paul is going to work through that theme, that major heading if you will, of the revelation of wrath from chapter 1, verse 18, that we just read, the wrath of God is revealed, all the way through chapter 1, the rest of it, chapter 2, and the first half of chapter 3 until He reaches the conclusion that everybody is included in that wrath. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're religious or irreligious, you are, as He phrases it in Ephesians, a child of wrath. And the wrath of God is revealed. And you come to verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. So the next thing that Paul's going to deal with, and if you want to really outline the book, the second and final major heading is the revelation of the righteousness of God. That is the answer to the wrath of God that has been revealed. And so as you come from that key passage in chapter 5, and then you come back to these two clear statements of something that's being revealed, the two major headings, if you will, of the book are with reference to those two men, Adam and Christ. And in Adam, that first man, we see sin, condemnation, and death resulting from that sin. And in Christ, the second man, we see righteousness, justification, and life resulting from Christ's perfect obedience. Now, I think it's important to understand this structure of the book. I understand, and if you look at different commentaries and study outlines, it's very common to outline the book, chapters 1 to 3, condemnation, chapters 4 and 5, justification, chapters 6 7, and sometimes they include 8 in there a little bit, uh, sanctification. Then you get to chapter 9 through 11 and you have to put this parenthesis in there, the problem of Israel. I'm not sure how much of that is a parenthesis or going through the remainder of the argument. But it's not improper to see those pieces of the Gospel. Justification and sanctification and glorification. Paul deals with those here. But the point is he doesn't deal with those in isolation. He deals with those as an unfolding. Well, the first heading is what's our condition naturally? How do we come into this world? We're born sinners because there's this first man that we were in. And sin came. And condemnation and death resulting from that. And the good news is that God has prepared a second man And that through Him, righteousness comes. And that results in justification and life. And all the other parts of salvation, those topics that come along, are part of what we get in that second man. And it's no problem, if you will, that the first major section of the book is about two chapters when you work it all up, part of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and part of chapter 3. And that the second major heading is the last part of chapter 3 and the rest of the book. Because, well, it doesn't become as difficult to understand sin as it is to look at that thing we sung of today, the wonder, the wisdom, and the power of God in justifying sinners. How can that be? Well, we're not surprised at all that Paul spends more chapters on that than the first heading. And so, if you look at that and have something of what's coming in mind, then let us go back to our text for today. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. We already looked last time at the opening part of verse 16 because that's the third of three very clear affirmations that Paul makes with regard to how he has been impacted by this Gospel. He sees himself as debtor. He sees himself as ready to preach. And then he sees himself as not ashamed. There may be others that are ashamed. The parts of this gospel that are offensive to the natural mind, they're offensive to the sinful mind and to the world, and even offensive to the religious mind that doesn't understand the gospel. But Paul has said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul very clearly is going to own this gospel. And he answers that by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For. Because. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the just shall live. By faith, I want to just make three statements to you today that are clearly on the surface of this theme, of these thesis verses, if you will. And the first statement is this. Salvation is a work of God's power. Now here, Paul uses salvation, the term, as a general term which is going to include all the elements that he's going to unfold in such detail later on in the book. It's going to include justification. It's going to include sanctification. It's going to include glorification. It's going to include Christian living and interacting with one another. It's going to include life in the church, life in the world. All of those parts of salvation. So this salvation is a work of God's power. He says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. Notice Paul doesn't say the Gospel gives power. No, he just says it simply and directly. The Gospel is power. It is the power of God unto salvation. I thought of bringing one of my, I lose count, it's either 28 or 29 commentaries on Romans. I don't consult all of them every week, by the way, I'll just confess that. I have a few favorites. But there was a, a precious paragraph that Leon Morris gave with regard to the gospel being power that it is the power of God unto salvation. But he summarized by saying the Gospel, the power of God is at work everywhere the Gospel is preached. The Spirit of God takes up the good news of Jesus and works in the hearts of the hearers. It's not something we work up in ourselves. It's not some power that we contain in ourselves if the preacher can just be a good motivational speaker and get us convinced that it's time to flip the switch. That's not salvation. Salvation is God's power working in our lives. It's His power all along. Period. So Paul doesn't say the Gospel gives power. He says the Gospel is power. Paul elaborates on this to the Corinthians when he talks about their surroundings and the prominence that the Greeks give to wisdom. And he contrasts it with their wisdom and says, the, the foolishness of men or the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And of course, that's just a figure of speech. There's no foolishness in God. But he speaks about it being the power of God unto salvation. The Gospel doesn't give power. It is power. And if you look how Paul phrases it here, this working of God's power that salvation is, is universal in scope. He says unto the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now, that can cause a few raising of the eyebrows. Do the Jews have some priority? Are they somehow different than Gentiles and better and thus You know, the the Gospel comes to them in a different way. Well, that's clearly not the case. You can put other Scriptures, even other statements of Paul side by side where he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. We're all one and the same. So in what sense does he say this Gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile? In many ways, it's almost a historical statement. In some ways, it was a practical statement when you see how in the Great Commission that the apostles, the witnesses, were witnessing first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. You can see it in Paul's methodology when he travels through the Gentile world, but he goes first to the synagogues. It's not so much again there that The Jews had some right to the Gospel that the Gentiles didn't have, but there the Old Testament Scriptures were read. People were there listening to the Scriptures. And there Paul had a platform then to open those Scriptures and preach to them Jesus. We read in Acts, he opened and alleged from those Scriptures that the Christ must needs to have suffered and to have risen from the dead but if you think of this, and we'll just take a a moment to to highlight it, and that phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, I think there's something even of the history of redemption there. If you look at the, the overarching picture of the Bible, and you see creation and you see God's dealing with the race and its sin, you see how quickly... Mankind corrupted Himself upon the face of the earth and by the time you get to Genesis 6, it's kind of early in our 66 books of the Bible, you have the story of the flood. And God destroys the whole race save one man and his family through which He's going to honor His promise, that Gospel promise of Genesis 3. So He doesn't destroy the whole race. He preserves the race through Noah and his family that the seed of the woman that was promised, that second man, might come. But amazingly, after such a manifest, tangible judgment against sin, the race quickly apostatizes again. And we see them bound together at the Tower of Babel. And even the supposition of the scholars that the intention of the building of that tower is to have a refuge into which to flee so that the waters wouldn't overtake them again. As if somehow we can build something that can withstand a flood that God would choose to send again, but He promised not to do that. And so instead of judging the race again at Babel, what does he do? He singles out a man. He calls Abraham as he has divided the race now into races, different nations, and scattered them. There are implications for this if you go all the way to the end. Where all of the nations, all the races will once again seek to unite themselves against the Lord and against His Christ, Psalm 2. Seek to overcome that division, that holding back of a unified humanity, a gracious holding back of a unified humanity. What is the spirit of Babylon? I mean, it's a giant theme in the scriptures. The spirit of Babylon is the uniting of all mankind apart from God, on a unity based on something other than God, other than truth, other than the gospel. Well, God delayed that when He confused the speech. And men were forced to separate into nations. But He called one man. And He formed one particular nation through His seed, again to honor the promise of sending this second man. Christ. And for that season in the Old Testament Scriptures where God had sovereignly set aside the Gentiles, abandoned them to their own sinfulness, and we'll see that highlighted very powerfully in the remainder of chapter 1 in Romans. And they gave great light to a nation that was to be a prophetic people to the other nations of the earth to preach this gospel. And it's now in the apostasy of that people to whom God had first come, if you will, Given the details and truth of the second man, that God is now sending that good news to the remainder of the nations again. And that's the age in which we live, and what a gracious working of God that it is. And Paul will comment on that later on. One of the purposes in that is to provoke Israel to jealousy, to call them back. But I think it is here, much more than just this survey of redemptive history, if you will, but that this good news, this Gospel is universal in scope. It's given, as we've already seen in that from Paul section, being the same Gospel that was preached by the prophets. Now he's come and he is saying that this Gospel is universal in scope. It's to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It's to all people. But it's particular in its application. Because having said to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, He's also spoken here that it's to everyone that believeth. There's a body of people called out from among Jew and Gentile. Called out from among the nations. It's a believing people. And here Paul's already hinting at the, the latter part the big punch, if you will of his thesis. It's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel that's by faith and not by works. And so here we see in his thesis that firstly salvation is a work, Of God's power. It's a work of His power that's universal in scope, but it's particular in its application. It goes to all the world. But it's going to all the world calling out a particular people. Those that will repent and believe. But The second statement I'd make to you today is this. The Gospel reveals God's righteousness. When Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he continues and he elaborates and he says for, it's another because, because therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Now here we have to pause and entertain the vast discussion of what does Paul mean by this? The righteousness of God that's revealed. We've dealt with this in other portions of Scripture. In some ways, the answer can be the same. But we have a choice here. There's a simple genitive. And if you've ever taken a Greek class or some other languages, sometimes what you're called upon in your homework assignments to do is figure out how is this particular case being used. And sometimes it's clear, and if you miss it, well, your teacher tells you. Other times it's not so clear. And scholars, language experts can debate and not really nail it down. Well, in those cases, very often, it's better to, to take it in the breadth of its potential meanings. Well, here the discussion comes down again to is this a subjective or an objective Genesis? genitive is it righteousness of God meaning righteousness God possesses basically or is it righteousness of God translate the genitive righteousness from God which actually some other versions of scripture do they interpret the genitive there because we'll see in a little bit it seems very clear that it is the objective genitive Paul's using here Righteousness from God. Not righteousness God possesses as an attribute, which is of course true. And it's actually a truth that Paul emphasizes in Romans. You remember that giant statement when he's unfolding the Gospel? That he might be just, righteous, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So Paul's not in any way, and we're not in any way arguing here against the truth that God is righteous. That He possesses righteousness as an attribute. But the question is, is Paul saying that here? Or is he speaking about righteousness from God? Righteousness which God gives. And if you look at the theme, if you look at the argument of the book, it seems quite evident that what Paul is expounding throughout the rest of the book is righteousness that God gives. Righteousness that's from Him to us as a gift of grace. Now I want you to turn with me for a minute over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 and verse 8, Paul is dealing with this very similar theme. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ, verse 9, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, Paul helps the Greek students here by not just using this as a simple genitive, but turning it into a prepositional phrase, which he says, the righteousness from God. There's no question, there's no variation of acceptable alternatives here. This is righteousness God gives. And so it is clear that is a central theme and truth of the Gospel. And since it's so clearly unfolded for us in chapter 5, most agree, and I have to say a hearty amen to them, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the Gospel revealing a righteousness which God gives. The Gospel reveals God's righteousness. Let us come then to our third and final point Then today. Salvation is a work of God's power. Salvation of the Gospel reveals God's righteousness, that righteousness that He gives to sinners, that righteousness that He graciously grants to the unrighteous. Our third point, salvation is entirely by faith. We come then to the phrase, closes out his thesis, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. He's going to supplement that with a quotation from the Old Testament as it is written. But really, the conclusion of his thesis is this, from faith to faith. Now again, commentators and scholars have wrestled with this. Uh, It's staggering to me in some ways to see where people can go with this. Now, I confess, as a young person, when I read this, when I was memorizing these verses and these chapters in quizzing as a teenager for Bible camp, what does that mean? From faith to faith. Do you change from one kind of faith to another along the way somehow? Is there some progression that's in view here? Some people start talking about a progression from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Maybe trying to draw in what we saw earlier in the, in the greeting, that it's the same gospel all along. Well, if that's the case, why, why some distinction from an Old Testament faith to a New Testament faith and some progression there? Some suggest to talk about it from maybe an immature faith in the life of the believer to a mature faith in the life of the believer. But I don't think that this statement Paul is making is one of progression at all of one kind of faith to another kind of faith at all. It's simply a statement of emphasis. It's a figure of speech to point out and put a bright spotlight on the truth and the fact that it is by faith from first to last. It is by faith from beginning to end. It is by faith entirely, or if we can jump forward a few centuries in church history to the great debate at the Reformation. It's by faith alone. That's what Paul has said. This righteousness of God that is revealed, a righteousness from God that is revealed, is a righteousness that is granted, is a salvation that is given entirely by faith. Now he's going to unpack, to use some of the academic lingo, he's going to unpack this later. Because we have questions even when it comes down to faith. That The fleshly, religious mind, the Arminian form of thinking, is ready to turn faith into a work. To turn faith into our part that we add to what God has done when He did His part. That's not the Bible's definition of faith at all. It's not Romans' definition of saving faith at all. Can I give you something we suggested years ago? I can't remember where we were. For some reason I feel like we were in John's Gospel, but wherever it was, we just put out there a working definition, if you will, of the Bible's teaching with regard to faith. Faith, Gospel faith, saving faith, has as its peculiar quality that it abandons hope in self and leans entirely upon the work of another for our salvation. That's what Paul's going to unfold. He's going to unfold that so clearly, so directly as He works through and comes to that key portion in chapter 5 that if you recall, He opens chapter 6 with an objection, with a question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Why does Paul start dealing with that in chapter 6? Because he says, I know if you understand what I just said, That your salvation has nothing to do with anything you do at all. It entirely rests upon what Jesus has done for you in your place. And you can add nothing to that work. You're not in any way responsible for your own acceptance with God. Jesus is. Then the thought that's going to come in your mind then is, well, does it matter then how we live? If that's true... If it rests entirely on His righteousness and none, zero, period, on my righteousness, can I just live any way I want? Paul says, yeah, you're going to have that question. And then he comes right back as will come and unfold. God forbid. Of course not. May it never be. But it's that clear what salvation by faith is. Faith. Rests all its hope on another and not on self. And this is Paul's statement of the gospel, of the theme, of the thesis that he's going to unpack in the rest of this epistle. Salvation is a work of God's power, salvation reveals. God's righteousness. God's gift of righteousness to sinners. And salvation is entirely from first to last, from beginning to end and everything in between, It's entirely by faith. Not by works. Paul, if you will, could not be any clearer where he's going And he couldn't be any clearer in putting the theme before us of what the gospel really is. It's the good news that sinners. And when he starts and gets in gear with the next verse, it becomes a sobering reality who and what sinners all of us really are. The good news is that sinners are accepted by God through a righteousness that is a gift of grace received by faith alone. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we today ask give us help in wrestling with what is the simplicity of what we've read in these several statements and yet the depth and power that they contain. We ask for grace and help as we continue to look through this epistle. Lord, that the impact of that will affect every life. Lord, part us with your blessing. We would even ask now that you would Grant your blessing upon our food and our fellowship together. Lord, we're thankful for times together with those of like precious faith. And Lord, we are thankful and mindful that you give us such good gifts. So bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' worthy name.